Being Black in America comes with its challenges. However, we understand that enlightenment through education is the oppressor's worst fear. By bridging the gap between academia and the people, our purpose is to equip you with knowledge that breaks down barriers during your journey towards truth and freedom. Welcome to the Black and Highly Dangerous Podcast. Yo, yo, Daph, what's going on? What's going on? Uh, nothing much. Just getting ready for Thanksgiving. Uh, I've spent the last couple of weeks trying to diet a little bit in preparation for, um, sadly, binging, binging on macaroni and yams. <laughs> That's funny. That's funny. <laughs> People die right before for the holiday. I mean, it's real low. You kind of got to get ready, clear your system out, you know, because you don't want to pass up on that good eating that comes around. This is only about once a year, maybe twice if you're lucky. Yeah. And the sad thing is, you know, you're not going to pass up on it. So it's just kind of like, you know, try to do like a pre, it's like a preemptive strike. You know, mm-hmm. you just want to like lose a couple pounds because, you know, you're probably going to gain a couple. And yeah. so, what, so, what summer bodies are made in the winter, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I'm not trying to start January, you know, with a new resolution about trying to lose weight. No, I'm in, I'm enjoy that day. Mm-hmm. I'm going to try to be healthy up until then. And then I'm a grub, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. enjoy it. Enjoy <laughs> it. Well, uh, any plans for Thanksgiving? Uh, you know, I, I house hop on Thanksgiving. So I'll start oh, okay. at my mom's house. Um, she is usually done early and just want to chill. And so I'll then, you know, visit some of my relatives that I haven't seen in a while. Nice. Nice. Yeah, I'm, I think we're just chilling this day. See, I mean, just me and Krista will just be. Oh, that's so sweet. Y'all gonna cook your first meal? We did that last Thanksgiving too. Yeah, oh that was God. our first. You know, oh, the first right, couple weeks after the yeah. wedding. So we was like, ah, right, let's do it ourselves. And so we uh, we're gonna do that again this this Thanksgiving. Cook a little something up. You gonna be watching football? Have you uh, watching football? No, I really, I really been, I really been good. Of you know, I've. I've like watched highlights and stuff, you know, to keep up what's going on. But I haven't been watching like games, full games in their live and all that kind of stuff. But I must say that Monday's game, uh, I, I I don't know if I'll be able to resist the Monday night football game. Who's playing Monday? It, it's it's the Rams and, and the Chiefs, and they're like both nine and one and like the top teams in in the NFL right now. Yeah. And so it just looks like it's going to be. And, and I like the Chiefs quarterback, man. He's this young black kid who's like doing really well. Uh, Patrick Mo- Mohan. Mohan. What's his last name? I can't remember. Mohan. I don't know. I, I don't know. I'm just looking at stuff. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny because I do know. I think John has been pretty good, but he definitely flew to New Orleans for the, uh, the Saints Patriots. Mm, okay. Okay. He he was like, I I have to watch it. Is that today? Is no. When is it? It was this past weekend. Oh, it was the past week. Okay, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the, the Saints he's a Saints fan? Uh yeah. So he's from Houston. So I just think I feel like Texas, New Orleans people, mm-hmm. they kinda get down together. And I think it was because like the Patriots, they didn't they win last year or something? The Super Bowl? Yeah. Yeah. Uh did they, yeah, I think they did, right? I can't remember. Yeah. yeah. 
I don't know. I haven't been keeping up with the NFL. Look at you. <laughs> Look at you. I know. It's like, it's like, you know, we, we all are weak sometimes. We all fall down sometimes. So, mm-hmm. you know, as long as you ain't, you know, trying to get him a bunch of money and stuff. Oh, but. yeah. Yeah. Not the case. <laughs> um, but yeah. Okay. Other than that, uh, got some old Lord news ready to pop off. Yes. All right. Let's get into it. Hello. And welcome to BHD News, where we give you the most current and eye-opening old lore news of the week. Join us as we present news that'll make you want to say... Okay, so this is, um, I guess this today's segment can be like just doing what you're supposed to do while black or, or working while black. And so I'll have a few stories about that. And this first one is really sad. And it makes me think about our uh, gun episode mm. um, and whether there's a such thing as a good guy with a gun mm. and whether you can be a black good guy with a gun. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure you heard about Jamel Roberson, who, was at a bar. He was a security guard. Um, Some people got into an argument and one of the guys started shooting. He bravely kind of pins the guy down. He has him under control. And because this guy had a gun, you know, Jamel took his gun out. He, you know, had it out just kind of like a don't move type of situation. The police come in and immediately shoot him. As people are yelling, he's the security guard. He's the security guard. It did not matter. Mm. The good guy with the gun was shot by police. Mm-mm-mm. Again, the, us us black folk, man, we can't believe these these phrases. You know, a uh, good guy with the gun. No, that is, and code word is a uh, white male with a gun will be perceived <laughs> as good guy with a gun. Anybody else with a gun? especially a person of color, you will not be perceived as a good guy. And even though you have within your rights and, and, and using, having to legally doing the right thing with your gun, still getting shot, man, it's so sad. And it's even so, sad. so thinking about in the, the, the past case where uh, the guy had, you know, his license, gun license, he was telling the police officer, like, I have a gun and a license on me. Boom, shot. And so it, it continues to happen, and it's sad. Uh, don't believe the lies about the supposed, supposedly good guy with a gun. Um, and everybody's Second Amendment right to carry is not um, respected in the same way. It's not. So come on, NRA. If you're going to be a civil rights organization, mm-hmm. be a civil rights organization for everybody. Where where you at? Where are yeah. you at? So this second story, it happened in Washington, the state. A guy named Byron Raglan was sitting at a Menchie's frozen yogurt shop. Um, He was there as a special advocate and visitation supervisor uh, for the court. So he was uh, supervising a visit between a mother and her son. Well, he had the police called on him because he was labeled as an unwanted person in the Menchies. Mm. What what made him unwanted? He was sitting there and doing nothing. That's literally what they said. That's literally what they said? That's in, yes. 
that he was sitting there when they described what he was doing. They said it was an African-American man. He's looking at his phone and then he'll look up and then he'll look back down at his phone and look up. (laughs) You got to be kidding me, man. Yo, that's my yo. And so the police came because yeah, of that? The, the police came and still asked him to leave. They asked him what he was doing there. He explained and they still told him that he needed to move along. That's that's like he was. a. I mean, I don't know, like a dog move along. Like, that's what he said. It felt like like you treated me like a stray dog or something. Wow. Like you literally called and said he's looking at his phone and looking up. Yes. <laughs> looking at his phone and looking up. Oh my goodness. That's, I don't even know. I don't even know. Like, And it was crazy because it wasn't even the workers that called. They text the owner of the store who then called the police and was like, oh, this man looks suspicious. Looking at your phone and looking up looks suspicious. He's there doing his job. They even saw him walk in with the mother and son who were white. Hmm. But because he was sitting, the the Menchie's owner kind of came out and was like, it's not racism. I'm Asian. Like, we just didn't know because he was sitting adjacent to the people. How about you ask him? You know, it's not like he's brandishing a gun. You know, he's sitting there looking at a phone like you could have asked. And people are like, you calling the cops for like ridiculous things or whatever consequences happen to these businesses. They deserve it. Yeah, they do. They do. And people, you, should and see that, you should see that Facebook. The the owner ended up writing a long Facebook post. I bet he did. <laughs> I, I did the little angry Facebook, uh, you know, the reaction. How you uh-huh. like, I did the little angry thing. I don't know. <laughs> Okay, I have two more stories. The mm-hmm. the third story, this is silly. So a local man in Virginia, Lynchburg, Virginia, was awarded uh, for his hard work. He was giving employee of the month at Sam's Club. And of course, they wanted to take a picture of him and post it on the wall. It just so happened that he had on a Black Panther shirt, the comic book shirt. Well, A customer saw the picture on the wall and called Sam's Club to complain and said that it would be an outrage or an uproar if, you know, an employee was wearing a KKK shirt. So, you know, of course, why are they letting him wear a Black Panther shirt? What? Wait, so you said the Black Panther shirt was from the superhero? Yes, and when you oh, look at when you God. look at the picture, you can see the characters on the shirt. Like it's not no Huey Newton picture on the shirt. It literally says oh, Black Panther, and like his arms is uh, arms are kind of covering it, but you can see the the Black Panther figure and two cartoonish figures standing beside him. Wow, this this life is getting worse and worse, man. <laughs> you can't look at your phone and look up. You can't wear a superhero shirt, you know, like this is crazy. So Sam's Club asked him, would he be willing to retake the picture um, to kind of appease the customer? And he said no. And, you know, good thing is Sam's Club was like, we support our employee. You know, Sam's Club probably want to make everybody happy, happy. You know, I'm happy they didn't, you know, retaliate against the worker when he was like, nah. Because there's nothing wrong with this shirt. 
This is crazy. You know, I'm writing down on my notebook right now. Like, we got to do a topic or find somebody. It's probably going to be a white person, but who does research on just like white fears, uh, something like that. Because we got to have a discussion on this. Yeah. <laughs> this is crazy. And speaking of fears, okay, this last story is about being the oppressor's worst fear, Mm, an intelligent (laughs) black person. So did you hear about a Virginia Tech freshman? His name is Landers Nolly, and he uh, he's a freshman forward for Virginia Tech, but he was not cleared by the NCAA. Ask me why, Ty. Why? Because. They thought his ACT scores were suspiciously oh high. Oh my! Oh my goodness, man! He cannot be cleared until he retakes the test. Oh hell no! That that guy that got to be some some violation or something. <laughs> he actually did retake it because they they were steadfast. He retook it. Oh my god! So we're waiting on the scores, but you know, people that describe him has said that he's always been a scholar athlete. You know, uh, and what made them suspicious is because they say his GPA didn't match his high ACT scores. I mean, that's actually not out of the ordinary. Like there's some people who have lower GPAs, but they score well on like standardized tests because they have this natural ability. Like those are two different things. Yeah. That's ridiculous, man. Yo, I can't believe it. Oh, we got a, we got a black athlete here and he looks a little too smart. Like what? Now, mind you, audience, Audience, if you do not know, when it comes to these tests, you know, people have to have like, you know, IDs. Like, it is not easy to go there and pose as someone else. Yeah, you can't. You can't do that. You can't. So it's just kind of like, I really hope his score matches his last score and that he's able to shut them up. Like, yo. Yeah. And if I was a academic, a sociologist on that campus, I'd be immediately about to do some research. Like, all right, let's look at the your athletes for the past 10 years. <laughs> let's look at their GPAs and their ACT or SAT scores and let's see the gap, you know? Mm-hmm. And and did you just, was this racially profiling? Have you read Red Flag and this guy? Because I'm sure that's common. You know? Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure that's not, not an uncommon thing of like, yeah, because athletes, if, if, you're a, if your athletic ability is great enough to where, you know, you end up p- playing for like a division one school, it's very likely that in high school you are practicing a lot, playing a lot. And that could just have easily impacted your GPA as your like intellectual ability. Mm-hmm. So it's just kind of like, I think that's silly. It's silly. Yeah, it is. That's that's crazy. <laughs> okay. Oh my God. You see all the things you can't do while being black? All the things. The, ad, the list just keeps on growing and growing. Every other week is something new, man. Because <laughs> you are suspicious. You are suspicious. suspicious, man. Can't even, can't even stay at home, man. It's like, you even want to do that. Like, man, I don't want to go outside no more, but <laughs> Popo want to come knocking at your door. Oh. Getting you there, too. It's crazy. Yeah. Oh, my God. All right. Well, um... Okay, so bringing us to uh, the guest, very special guest we have today is Dr. Nicole Van Cleve, who's an associate professor at University of Delaware. Um, and she pretty much is here to talk about her book, Crook County, um, which is a, a book where she did eth- ethnographic work at the Cook County jail and court system 
I'm observing them for over and over a thousand hours of observations in the Cook County Courthouse in Chicago. Um, yes. And so her book speaks speaks to the really a lot of the racism that goes on uh, that we just don't hear about. You know, a lot of the research talks about the after effects, looking at stats and looking at the inequalities. But her book really takes a deep dive in looking at well, how are these inequalities actually present themselves in the courtroom and in everyday practices of the courts mm-hmm. with all the court court actors from the judges to the prosecutors to the defense attorneys to the to the clerks and everyone um so it's a really really interesting book and we're glad that we had the opportunity to come you know the sheet for her to come talk to us and chat about her work yes uh very very amazing work in-depth uh research is won awards you know she's been on Rachel Maddow um she's been on NBC News all of these places because you know there are often questions about what causes these racial disparities and I think her book does a really good job of helping us to see how these like Ty said these everyday practices result in some of the outcomes that we see in the criminal justice system. So I'm really excited about this conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And even in one interesting thing, you know, to pay attention to in the conversations too, is her book also talks on, talks about some of the conversations that take place when um, we see these kind of major police brutality cases, uh, killing unarmed black men and how, you know, it affects the courtroom culture and the conversations that happen behind closed doors that we really don't hear about like when these things happen you know we hear everybody in the news and the media but it's interesting to see uh the perspective of like oh you know what are these lawyers and prosecutors and how are they uh, uh, taking this in as it's happening in real time and working these cases as well so it's really good stuff that i'm sure you all will will gain from it um and we learned a lot from it and definitely check out her book crook county if you get a chance um for sure mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. other than that ready to get into it dad okay. i am All right, we'll catch up with y'all afterwards. In recent years, policymakers, activists, and the mainstream media have given increased attention to racial disparities within the criminal justice system. However, some skeptics have raised questions about whether statistics highlighting racial disparities are a result of racism or some other cause. Today, we provide insight into the role of race, racism, and discrimination in shaping legal outcomes by interviewing Dr. Nicole Gonzalez Van Cleve, an associate professor at the University of Delaware in the Department of Sociology and Criminal Justice. Her research explores the contradictory ways that racial stigma is reproduced by the criminal justice system in a purportedly colorblind era. We'll discuss her book, Crook County, and how everyday racism within the justice system perpetuates racial inequality. Welcome, Dr. Van Cleve. Thank you for having me. No, thanks for joining us. Um, so one of the first things we'd like to do, of course, with our guests is just to get our guests to introduce themselves to our audience. So can you just tell our guests uh, and our, our listeners uh, a little bit about yourself and kind of what sparked your interest in sociology and criminal justice and the work that you do? Yeah, I'm currently an associate professor at the University of Delaware in their Department of Sociology and Criminology. And I got my PhD at Northwestern University. Um, and I was, you know, there, I, I had had this long history of studying sociology there. As an undergrad, I was a first generation college student. I was really hungry to kind of understand my own life and lineage. And, and sociology seemed I know for many you know, scholars of color and for many first-gen students, it felt like a very natural fit that it helped me understand my own identity, my own life, 
And um, I started there as an undergrad, and, and that's where I first started to explore the criminal court system and the criminal justice system more broadly. I applied to be a a law clerk in the prosecution's office. And back in the day, and I think they actually still have this program, Northwestern had this amazing uh, opportunity for undergrads where you could go do field work at a field site of your choice. And I really thought I wanted to be a prosecutor to prosecute uh, crimes against women, you know, sexual assault and other types of things that might have, you know, made women vulnerable. So I really thought that going to the prosecutor's office would enable me to do great work, great Mm -hmm. social justice work on behalf of women. And of course, when I got there, what I saw was just a stream of black and Latino defendants, young, charged with mostly nonviolent crimes. And so my senses were assaulted by this idea that our court system was so invested in uh, criminalizing these young people, people that could mm-hmm. be my you know, brother, cousin, neighbor. And um, as a light skinned person of color, I had a very unique vantage point is that I soon realized that the prosecutors, judges and defense attorneys around me assume me to be white. So they used my education at Northwestern or my affiliation with the university as kind of a proxy for, well, she must be white and she must have whiteness. And they were super candid with me about um, their jobs, uh, their ethics how they think about themselves within the criminal justice system, either, you know, how they pursue convictions and also their race, racial views. And so that was the, um, the kind of, the kind of entry point into what became the book Crook County, which was a really a decade long investigation, not just of the criminal justice system, but of racism in America and how our court system has become, you know, in some ways, a vehicle through which mostly white attorneys, upscale, educated, can make decisions about the morality and quote unquote immorality of of low income people of color. And in that kind of environment, when you task these mostly white professions professionals with doing that, you really get a you know, in some ways, a case study of how racism can fester in in, in institutions that are purportedly colorblind. Mm. Um, that's, um, really insightful. And I know your book is based on more than like a thousand hours of observations in the Cook County courthouse in Chicago. And so you've kind of spoken a little bit about your experiences in the field, how your, uh, positionality and your, you know, physical appearance, you know, helped you to gain access. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about your experiences, some of the things you heard, um, and also any potential like collecting this data. Yeah, I mean, I think you know it started as this um, ethnography. It started as an ethnography or a field work assignment. Um, as an undergrad. And then, you know, I went back as a PhD student to further uh, continue that ethnography. Um, But I felt like as a woman of color, even as a a woman of color with light skin and 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 the privilege that comes with that, I really felt as a joke, I used to say, who's going to believe Jenny from the block when she says she has data about the pervasiveness of racism by prosecutors and judges and even defense attorneys. And so it was kind of that like anxiety of not feeling like anyone would listen or believe me that made me think about how do I innovate my methods to go beyond what traditional ethnography does. And I had spoken with Elijah Anderson, um, 
when I was writing this book and researching this book and he, he had said to me, just, just go thick with the description, right? Describe this culture, right? This court culture. And I remember thinking in my head, well, that's great when you're studying, um, marginalized people of color, but when you study powerful people, people with the most power to inflict the greatest harm is description enough or, are people going to hold you to a different standard, an unfair standard maybe, but a different one? And that's where I did um, criminal court watching. That was actually the 1,000 hours on top of the ethnography that I did in order to in some ways isolate race and show how it was working. Um, I had a lot of professors that pushed back on me. And anytime I would find abuse that I would see as being blatantly uh, racialized, Um so, for instance, a man asking for a trial and the sheriffs were cruel enough to take a wire, pl- wrap it around his chair and plug him into the wall during the trial as though he was going to be executed. I mean, to me, that seemed extremely abusive. It reminded wow. me of Abu Ghraib, where they were putting the, the fake wires around that gentleman as they tortured him into thinking he was going to be electrocuted. And, and to me, that seemed like a racialized image, one in which we were seeing on a national scale. But to some white faculty members and many cynics, they were saying, well, how do you know that's not class stigma? And so the court watching effort that I did allowed for me to in some ways isolate race. I sent in 130 research assistants over two years and they had different racial backgrounds. So I oversampled researchers of color. And instead of them walking and doing court observations as professionals, meaning they weren't wearing suits, I had them wear jeans and hoodies and ball caps and dress as the everyday public. So these researchers in some ways could take additional observations of the pervasiveness of abuse, but I could also kind of secretly test how they were being treated based on their race. And that's where you really saw how race was operative. All the researchers of color, even if they were from University of Chicago Law School or Northwestern, were asked if they were criminal defendants. They were treated as criminals. They were, you know, searched uh, um, more seriously at the at the security gates. Whereas the white researchers, you know, one of two things happened. The white researchers were stopped and assumed to be journalists. So sometimes they were treated hostily because they were perceived as a threat. Mm-hmm. Meaning, uh, meaning, oh, this is a white person that we don't know. So they might, maybe they're a muckraker or somebody who's going to blow the whistle on what we do here. So they were treated very hostily, intimidated. Um, one white researcher was brought to the uh, to sit in the witness stand by a judge and felt scared and uncomfortable to leave. Um, the other set of white researchers were in some ways treated like VIPs, and so the sheriffs would say, oh. I can, we got great gruesome trials to show you. And there's a, you know, a trial in courtroom 302 where a you know, guy hacked up a, the whole family. And so in some ways mm-hmm. they would parade the suffering of black and brown families as though it was for the entertainment of whites. Um, so, you know, when you saw the data coming from this court watching, it really helped dispel any type of critique, whether cynicism or whether people just trying to push the boundaries of the of the empirical aspect of this work to the next level. But you could start to dispel that idea that it wasn't about race, that it was about something else. And when you're doing an, a book about racism and you start it in the era of Obama, that that was a that was a big challenge to overcome. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a quick follow up question before we get to some more of the content of your book. You know, what advice would you give to somebody who's who may want to pursue this kind of line of research and be in the court systems and get that kind of access? What are maybe a c- couple of quick tips you would give to them to help them in that 
in that well, pursuit? I, you know, I guess it depends on what their identity is. I mean, I've, you know, I, I've often said that I think it is extremely hard to, um, you know, when you're a person of color, it is hard to get candid data on white racism because mm-hmm. whites are, especially really educated whites are extremely sophisticated in how they're able to hide or cloak their racist racism and non-racist rhetoric, right? We know that. Um, so I, I think, you know, I, I joke that I had a lot of fun um, when it was clear that I was passing as white and I knew that the candidness of my responses, like I could uh, basically go into this community and be undetected and get people's true views on race in America, especially at a place that's supposedly as sacred as our courts. And so the advice I would say for people, especially white folks that want to be advocates, I used to constantly wonder, why didn't another researcher do this study? Like, I mean, I kept thinking, there must be someone who'll go into these courts, play along, and then come back and report about the pervasiveness of abuse, whether it be in policing, the jails, the court system. But I really didn't see that happening. So I would really, in speaking to um, especially white researchers, you know, I would say, why not? You know, why, you know, maybe stop putting the lens on marginalized folks. And as I say in the book, you know, why don't we put the lens and the gaze on people that create the conditions of marginality? And in some ways that automatically privileges a white researcher. But so far, I didn't really see many accounts that do that, that turn the tables on the traditional ethnographic gaze. And rather than, you know, um, I think Victor Rios calls it the jungle book ethnography. Everybody is fascinated by other, how the other half lives. And in the process dehumanizes, uh, sensationalizes poverty, pain, racism, um, creates more harm than good. And so I think that that would be my one piece of advice for, you know, how people can start to be critical and really focus the lens on people in power. And I think for, you know, researchers of color, I say, you know, um, uh, Paul Butler is a law professor and he talks about the legitimizing role, right? That when you're in the room, you in some ways legitimize what's happening. So it's not entirely impossible if you're darker and you, you can't pass. I don't think that's, a you know, a, um, you know, kind of a qualification or something to doing this type of work. Mm-hmm. I would say Paul Butler would say that you're being in that room. If they start to do de- deplorable things, your job is to, uh, record that research, go deeper and find out more and be, and why I think the tough thing emotionally, at least it was for me, was that it felt complicit because I, I felt complicit because I couldn't stop it. And I was seeing, you know, if you see, um, one of the court watchers, actually three of them saw a child be taken into a lockup, a courtroom lockup. And she was fiddling with a cell phone and her mom was sitting right next to her. And as this was narrated from these court watchers that were, uh, you know, bringing back this data to me in this, the second phase of the study, I kept thinking, I felt so complicit. Like there was nothing I can do for that mother. I didn't even know her name. You know, her child was taken away for her, from her. To me, it almost felt like in, in, in the days of lynching that your child could be taken away from you. And, and, and you had no control as a black mother. You had no control as a brown mother. Like I, that felt so powerful. So you know, I would say that researchers of color are important in this because I think we're asking the questions that many people have ignored. I think that's the first level. But the second part is, though, is to, you know, heed warning that it, it, it comes with its own set of emotional 
uh, baggage and burdens too, because it is very hard. And when you're in some ways in those spaces and performing what Paul Butler says is the legitimizing function, standing in there and, and maybe White's feeling, well, it's not that racist because I just did it in front of him or her and she didn't complain or they might even say to you, do you think that's that bad? And they want you to validate, right? Mm-hmm. What they said, you know, technically as sociologists, we're supposed to stand back and not interfere with that. Right. And so on the one hand, there's kind of an ethics there. It's a, it's a, it's a balancing act. It's a balancing act to both fit into your field site or your ethnographic site, but yet not be complicit in the types of abuse that you may find. Mm, That makes a lot of sense. I think that's good advice. Um, All right. So let's get into the book a little bit. And, uh, you know, for me, I feel like one of the more important contributions of your book, you know, is really observing how racism kind of happens in everyday legal practices. Right. Um, A quote that that stood out to me from your book is kind of what you said in the beginning of it. Right. To set the precedent for what it was going to be like is like you said, as we will see, this book does not unearth rogue attorneys or racists but it reveals court culture that thrives on racism to function efficiently, a complex culture that exists as its own social ecosystem, far from the oversight of accountability of the legal bar in the city at large. I think that's important because a lot of times when people, you know, are even maybe you're trying to do this research or think about how a system or an institution may be racist, I think a lot of time they're looking for those stories of where you're pulling out, you know, again, like these kind of rogue attorneys or these kind of blatant or explicit racists that are doing these things. But it seems like your main intent was just to show how just the everyday operations of the court system kind of reproduces this racism in many ways, in more subtle ways. So can you, you know, just maybe share with our listeners some of the subtle ways, right, that racism was playing out and just the everyday functions of, of the court? Yeah, I mean, so so attorneys, you know, one would think that, um, uh, that the worst, quote unquote, criminals, like people charged with attempted murder or violent crimes would have been seen as the worst uh, the worst types of, of, of the worst element, if you will, coming into the court, but it was actually reversed. And this is, you know, one of the things I argue is that racism really does turn logic on its head, right? There's a lot of, um, you know, kind of cultural and um, ideological work necessary for these attorneys to make sense of uh, what comes down to racism in a supposedly colorblind world. And, you know, prosecutors feel very vindicated when they see a violent criminal, right? And it's kind of, you know, they say, well, this is the purpose of our job. I'm trying to keep the streets safe and and all these other things, right? Um, They have those logics that make them feel good about the work that they do. But the reality is what they see is a stream of people charged with nonviolent crimes. And so it really, in some ways, throws into question their very mission and purpose in their work. And I think race in some ways acts as a really great scapegoat uh, to make it all make sense, which is the prosecutors and judges mostly have created this word called mope. And it's it basically it basically means the lazy, degenerate uh, uh, offender that is almost so lazy and degenerate that they're not even good at being, quote unquote, criminal. It has all the derogatory um, meanings as the N word, but they gave it a new name and call it something that's non-racial. Um, and they can, and they continue doing that. And in some ways they, they blame this mope as what is wrong with the system, clogging up the system so that they can't get to the real criminals, the real cases, right? So they put those boundaries between themselves and the defendants. And so processing mopes as quickly as possible become the goal. You know, if you're if you're dehumanized as a mope, uh, that means you don't have rights. Right. So in some ways, we're seeing this in the family separation at the borders right now. Right. If if you can code these families as 
being less than human, then it doesn't seem, it seems kind of okay, if you will, to the people charged with taking a baby away from a mother, right? Mm -hmm. And so in the same way, they didn't really, um, you know, again, like they didn't really see a problem with uh, skirting over people's due process rights or mocking them in open court as though they, or talking about them as though they're invisible. Um, So you see like a probation officer one time, he's talking, uh, you know, pointing a finger at this uh, this gentleman that violated his probation. And I said, I said to him, what is a mope? Like, tell me what a mope is to this probation officer. He points to this young man that's literally sitting right there in earshot of us. And he goes, yeah, you see that guy? He's like, oh man, dad ain't right. This shit ain't right. Why'd a judge be like that? So he flips into ebonics to, in some ways, you know, embody the mope, right? In, in, in his perception of what Ebonics or Black English vernacular is right. This bastardization um, to dehumanize him and and degrade him even more. And then he said, you know, putting a guy like that is like throwing trash in the ocean. It just comes back to you. So again, coding the defendants, the mopes. When you when you went to go probe, what is a mope and what types of things do they do? It was always a nonviolent offense. And then ultimately, when you dug deeper, there was always more violent racial language like trash and dirt and scum um, that in dogs uh, that would in, that allowed an enormous amount of what I would say traditional racism to be alive and well in that courtroom and to almost completely be entangled with the law and uh, the, the legal processes and the criminal charges that that we think are non-racial. Mm. Yeah, that's that's really um kind of sad to hear is kind of disturbing. Um, So I know uh, within this framework, uh, when people think about the court system, a lot of the times prosecutors get the blame for most of the racial inequalities present within the courts. Mm -hmm. Um, But your book highlights that prosecutors and defense attorneys, um, public defenders in particular, Mm -hmm. play a role in racist practices. So can you describe for our listeners um, some of the things you witness in regard to how both prosecutors and public defenders perpetuated these inequalities? Yeah, well, you know, the, the prosecutors, some of it seemed more obvious in the sense that the pros- for the for the prosecutors, that they might perpetuate this sense of racial injustice and this racism. You know, so the, the description of, you know, talking about mopes, um, you know, that they coding certain types of defendants as being unworthy of rights, unworthy of time from the court, unworthy of a trial, for instance. And so I think the prosecutors really led that culture. And it was more the public defenders that had to be responsive to it. Um, One of the things I talk about is there is a gruesome game that prosecutors used to play, and it was called the two-ton game. Um, And Basically, the way you won the two-ton game is you convicted, and then they would say the N-word. So the prosecutors would have a competition. They would look at the uh, they would look at the rap sheet. They would see how much a defendant weighed, and if the person was heavy, and they convicted that person, they'd create a tally, and the first person that could get to a ton uh, would win the game. And they they actually used the overt racial slur. Mm. Um, and I apologize for your listeners, but I think it's important that we hear it. So they used to call this niggers by the pound. And when they started getting in trouble, they recoded it as mopes or they stopped using those words. And they saw this as kind of galleys, you know, the gallows humor. And I think, and never really interrogated how deeply, um, 
racist it is, right? And so the prosecutors that are in my book are from a long line, if you will, of, uh, they inherit this culture, right? Some of them are still of the legacy of those people playing that two-ton game. And I think, you know, when public defenders have to fight that culture, they have to either, you know, what is it like, you have to join them to beat them in some ways. So you do see public defenders using that very rhetoric to, in some ways, mask any sympathy for defendants, right? Um, so you see public defenders in some ways say something like, well, I know my guy's a scum, but judge. And then the but is where they start to ask for something special for this, for a person charged that has a family. Um you know, or I remember one, uh, one defendant was, or defense attorney was trying to get money back that was confiscated at arrest. And a lot of times, you know, they'll just seize everything. If you had anything in your pocket, a check, I mean, they're taking it all cell phones. And, um, sometimes it's people's rent money, right? And so a whole family could be affected by whatever's in your pocket during the moment of arrest. So the public defender knew he couldn't save the defendant, but he tries to save the mother and he says, you know, the mother's money. And he says, judge, I, I really, you know, there was money in the, in the guy's pocket. And the judge was like, oh, come on, you know, that's drug money. You're not getting it. I'm confiscating it for the state. And so he kind of says, oh, come on, judge. It's mama's money. It's mama's money. So kind of racializing the mother and almost mocking her and this kind of mammy trope, like she's not a real mother, right? She's a black mother. And, um, and he comes up with a scheme to, in some ways, try to figure out if it's, if it's her money or the son's money, he ultimately ends up winning, but to win, he has to be racist. He has to perform a level of racism that to most readers, I hope feels unsavory and raises those ethical questions in the classrooms, in, you know, in courtrooms across America. Is this what we need to do to defend people, um, in, in criminal courts across America, I would say to me, this is one of the most deplorable things is that the public defenders have to engage in almost like a surface level, a standard level of racism or racial tropes in order to, um, in order to be successful for their clients. Is that what we should be willing to do? No, that's a really good question. And a really good point for like, like you said, uh, people who are even, up and coming and wanting to be into the legal sector, legal sector and legal practitioners and young lawyers. And, you know, I, I'm just thinking of, you know, the mindset and the perspective of them going through law school or excited to go through law school and, and how they imagine, you know, they can be maybe even like kind of like a social justice warrior within the courtroom and upholding the integrity of justice. Uh, but then when you get in these settings, you have to kind of give some of that away, right. Or, or play the game so that you can win for your clients, but I can just, Imagine the internal, you know, push and pull yeah. and the turmoil on a yeah, and level. I and that's what you know. And I, as I mentioned at the beginning, about you know, as researchers, right? Like, what are we willing to do? I often used to say to myself, "Is this study worth it? Is this book worth it? Um, is being complicit worth it?" And I'm sure that public defenders, you know, maybe I think many of them probably imagine me doing a, a book that would just be critical of the prosecutors and judges because, I mean, again, I mean that the games they played and the things they did are so egregious, but yet shouldn't we also put that lens on how public defenders had to be complicit and the type of harm that they would create as well for their clients, mm -hmm. that their hands were in some ways dirty too. And that if they really are interested in reform then they have to also acknowledge that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, definitely. Um, 
So, you know, another thing that stood out to me in your book, right? And I think it's very important to discuss because if it has been being discussed for these past couple of years and you highlight it in, in the section law bending and law breaking behavior and, you you know, in a few sections after that as well, where you kind of highlight like issues with like police brutality, of course, you know, you mentioned briefly mentioned Michael Brown, Tamir Rice in those cases. And even today, right, we're still seeing what's going on in Dallas with the the Botham Jean case and Amber Geiger and, and going on with that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, part of the major conversation and dominant conversation is, you know, police officers, how are they, how does this operate in the court system? Why did they get off? Why did they not go to court? And you right. do highlight and uh, and talk about, you know, the, how the closest of prosecution and law enforcement plays a role in these type of cases. Yes. Um, so what are some of the things you witnessed while you were, you know, doing your research that can speak to what we see in these relationships? Well, I, you know, this book came out uh, right when the video of Laquan McDonald in Chicago, um, when that when that entire news story erupted. And Laquan McDonald, for the listeners, listeners who may not know, he was a young man that was shot 16 times. Um, there was multiple peep officers at the scene. He was surrounded. It looked like he had an object in his hand. It was unclear whether it was a gun, a knife or some other type of thing. It was unclear. Um, and he was kind of walking, ranting and raving, but not complying with officer instructions. The last officer to the scene is, um, Jason Van Dyke. And within, uh, literally you see the squad car video. He's driving kind of frantically through the city car stops, he immediately gets out and unloads the entire gun on this young man. Um, it's so bad that literally the Kwame's body is smoking. And, uh, I remember seeing that case and they fired the chief of police. And I remember saying that won't do anything. And I remember being like enraged, like so enraged that I felt like if I don't speak up now, cause I, again, it took a long time to research this book, right? This felt like it, you know, it was like a decade in the making. And, and in a lot of ways I kept thinking, well, who's going to believe me? So I really wrote this book being in absolute fear that despite all the data that there was still going to be people saying that's not happening. She doesn't know anything. What does she know? Um, you know, so I thought that, and so I took a leap of faith. Um, I wrote off my first op-ed ever, um, I pitched it to NBC News on a whim. I met a, you know, uh, the vice president of NBC News came to Temple University campus where I was employed at the time. I was a professor at the time. And I gave him a card and I said, you know, when this book comes out, it might, it might, uh, I would love to get linked with the local NBC affiliates. I didn't really think um, what role could I play in this dialogue about police brutality. And so my first argument was just, or my first op-ed was just to educate the public that prosecutors in some ways enable police brutality. Um, And how they do that is by, in some ways, looking the other way when they bring it, when police officers bring in cases that, you know, kind of don't make sense, right? Where there is a suspect dead and the story doesn't, doesn't really pass scrutiny. If it were any other type of witness, the prosecutor would interrogate that witness, but it's a police officer. And because the police is in charge of giving cases to the prosecutor, police become extremely scared to challenge any police officer's word. And so they, in some ways, used to even relinquish and say, well, you know, it's my case now, but you always have to tell the officer it's really their case, right? It's their case. And so they used to, prosecutors were almost fearful of police. So the culture was so intertwined that you even have prosecutors, like the first warning I got about dealing with, with police officers was from a female prosecutor. And she says, 
I don't care what these police officers do. Do not accept a date or if they come on to you, do not allow them to advance, you know, be very firm, but kind about how you reject them. And I remember thinking, why? And she, she had said to me, she's like, well, she told me the story about a, a, a female prosecutor who was stalked by the police. And she said to me, who are you going to call the police? You know, saying like, don't get involved. It, it felt like, like the mafia. And so I watched very carefully as I saw some of the little tricks and tactics of the prosecutors and kind of playing nice with police uh, not wanting to question officers, for instance, in separate rooms. So if you have a team of officers, so to um, an officer and their partner, she, the, you know, the prosecutors would give them the case file, let them quote unquote, refresh their memory as they walked out and got coffee. So again, would they do that for any other witness or would they do that for the, you know, for just the police? Um, the fact is, is that, you know, prosecutors need police officers to win cases. If they don't win cases, prosecutors will not get promoted. So it's, it's in some ways a self-selecting system where the ones, the prosecutors then that comply with police officers the most, the most agreeable uh, prosecutors will get and will advance faster in, in the office. And therefore it selects people who don't make any noise or resist the police. And so that, you know, really explaining that to the public felt instrumental in trying to show that Laquan McDonald and the officer, Jason Van Dyke, there was, there was more Laquan McDonald's is one of the first things I say. And there's absolutely more Jason Van Dyke's. We just don't know their names. We just don't uh, have prosecutors that have ever scrutinize those cases. And that's why you saw the chief prosecutor in Chicago, it took her 400 days to charge the officer that shot Laquan McDonald 16 times. And we had a video of it, right? Um, and also police officers that were coercing witnesses at the scene. You don't have that level of cultural behavior unless you know that no one else is there in the court system, either prosecutors nor judges, that no one else is there to hold you accountable. It, you wouldn't have that behavior because they would they would be scared, right? It was a brazen culture. And I think understanding these courts and the police as an intertwined system, my hope is that that, can, that small bit of knowledge will help change people's minds, both jurors and judges across America. My hope is that that's the legacy of that, of that, of that case, which is actually um, in trial right now. So it's been a busy, emotional week for the city of Chicago. Mm. I, I have to say that that makes me a little nervous about the Jean, uh, Botham Jean case, uh, considering the fact how that was handled over the weekend with making sure that the officer had her story together and she, you know, had time to think about things. And I mm, that that makes me a little afraid. But yeah, I, I'll, it's just I'll it, it is the norm. I mean, there's all you know, even unions have fought. Uh, once a, you know, some kind of a shooting happens, uh, that some jurisdictions have time limits. I mean, excuse me, not time limits, but like almost like a waiting period in which you can wait to question the officer. But to me, that's like, well, that's a crucial moment where you might wait to change your story. Like if you were any other person and shot and killed somebody on the street, they would bring you in immediately and you would have mm -hmm. to talk and account for that. You wouldn't get days mm -hmm. and time with an attorney to, you know, create a new narrative of that story. And so, again, I absolutely, when we see these cases over and over again, and the failure to receive justice in almost every single one of them, they're all linked to the fact that these prosecutors can, are some, are so dependent on uh, police officers that they are, you know, they're indebted to them almost all the time. 
And so I, you know, that, that to me was the main, uh, the, one of the, the findings in some ways, it's not the main finding of the book, but it's definitely the one that got the most press attention on like the Rachel Maddow show and the New York times. And, but it's an important soundbite because it then, I hope that you, you can educate enough of the public like jurors to eventually start to make change in, in the minds of people that police testimony, like any witnesses, police can lie. Mm. Absolutely. Um, so in thinking about everything you just talked about mm-hmm. and, of course, everything else that's in the book, um, and I hope people pick it up because I'm pretty sure there's a lot that we didn't get to. So with everything you witnessed and learned from your research, what are some solutions or recommendations on how to fix this problem, yeah. you know, to fix the racist operations of the court? Mm-hmm. Well, I think one of the things that I... I realized during the data collection of the study was that, you know, court watching was a really important part of kind of exposing racism. And, but I didn't think of it as a tool for social justice at all. I had worked in marketing for five years before I went to get my PhD and we had sent in secret shoppers all the time to places like Hallmark and Disney. We would do quality controls and checks to see if people were being courteous, responsive, um, treating people with dignity, treating people uh, like consumers, right? That had value and merit. Uh, So I kept thinking, well, you know, is this a way that we can in some ways exert some influence? So I'd like to play around with, and what I suggest in the book at the end is can we do court watching initiatives in jurisdictions across the nation um, in some ways to hold accountable, in some ways to hold accountable the, uh, the, the, the court actors, right. As they do business, I think a lot of times when you read the book and you think about the egregious things that they're doing in open court, you know, you have a judge sleeping on the bench during a trial, right. Uh, you have a judge passing out Girl Scout cookies to the, to a defendant, right. Imagine how that looks to a victim, right. When you have those stories, if they knew that people from the outside were watching on a regular basis, would they behave that way? Or would they conduct themselves with the dignity that is expected of a criminal court in America? I think that could make some change. I've seen um, right now for you know folks that go on Twitter. There's a New York um, there's a New York uh, City court watching. Uh, it's called Court Watch NYC. Uh, they actually are importing some of the methods that I use to in the book Crook County to actually do advocacy within New York City. They're tweeting their findings. Uh, they're also trying to report on judges that are poorly behaved on the bench. And, and uh, so I think, you know, there's hope in that. I think there's something about oversight. We need to have more oversight. The other thing is, I, I, I think the public education of, of potential jurors across America, like I do not give up on the fact that, you know, writing op-eds and, and being an educator, my responsibility is not just to educating the students that I see in my lecture hall, right? That I'm my hope is to educate the the voter, the juror. Um, that's a slower process of reform, but I think one that over time can start to make a difference. Mm-hmm. No, that's really cool. Yeah, I actually have a couple of my students interning with a court watch program in Poughkeepsie. Oh, great. And so, great. so they really enjoy it. Um, yeah, I think it's a really good start, right? One of the yeah. different ways. And, and I know people like, you know, Sean King, activist who has the real justice pack uh, that are, you know, trying to, get people to get uh, progressive DAs in office as well, right? Yeah. Um, and elect them in these spots too. So it can begin to tackle some of these issues we've been seeing with this prosecutor relationships and 
police officers and things along those lines. Yeah. So. I mean, I think it, you know, actually when you said Poughkeepsie, I was thinking, are those the students at Vassar college, right? Or maybe, or some folks in Vassar. Yeah. Some of us, but my yeah. students are at SUNY. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, at Vassar, I actually did the court watching training at Vassar college uh, okay. when I went up there for like a keynote and that was, everybody was really excited about this idea of doing court watching, right? That that's mm-hmm. a, you know, and again, like I remember, you know, Sean King had done like a, I don't know, 10 part series on reforming policing in America. And I remember emailing him and saying, please do not leave out prosecutors. You cannot reform policing in America until you know that, pol- that prosecutors are the ones that hold a lot of the, the, the power that they, they absolutely could tomorrow. Like there's good things happening though. I mean, one of the good things that, you know, in terms of, um, you know, maybe think ha- having the listeners know that there's some hope is, uh, what felt really empowering is that the series of op-eds I did, so the op-ed I did first for the New York Times, or excuse me, the uh, NBC News was called Anita's Army, Rank and File Racism and the Power to Prosecute. That got, was flying around the internet and it made me so proud because here is this critical race uh, message being uh, disseminated on a mainstream, right, national network news. So that felt really powerful and it allowed me to talk, be able to talk on TV about the findings. And it did catch fire so that protesters, Black Lives Matter protesters can in some ways, they knew about the findings in my book and they could point to the data and say, see, it's not just our lived experience. There is a researcher, there's a professor here that is showing you data on what is happening and how prosecutors are enabling it. And they ended up, um, through that activism, they ended up single-handedly ousting Anita Alvarez, uh, who was the prosecutor. Only two prosecutors that year in America were ousted. It was the prosecutor involved in Chicago in the Laquan McDonald shooting, and it was the prosecutor involved with Tamir Rice, right, a vulnerable little boy. So I, you know, to me, that gives me hope, which is we do have the power, especially as researchers, if you have data that shows abuse, if you get it out there and make sure that you are making enough noise, you are empowering protesters that are literally putting their bodies on the line. You are doing a great service and you can have change. And, you know, Kim Fox became the new prosecutor first. I think she's the first black woman in that role. Um, and, you know, it's not perfect, right? She has a lot of hurdles and all the people in my book, here's the scary part. She inherited them. She's a reformer that inherited the people that are um, the people that are profiled, you know, kind of namelessly profiled in my work. However, she now has a do not call list where she does not call certain officers who know to commit police perjury, who tests a lie. She is clamping down on that. She has reviewed drug cases where she believes wrongful convictions may have occurred and she's releasing people from prison. So there is a, there is a start, right? Like we see that. And here in Philadelphia, it's very similar. We had the election of Larry Krasner, who's considered um, a progressive prosecutor. And so there's a lot of hope. He also has a do not call list. He came into the office and quite controversially fired, I think about 20 prosecutors. And the sense was these were prosecutors that were, really tight with police in a very unhealthy way. And uh, he kind of cleaned house before he could get down to business. It it shows there's hope even during these really rough and tumultuous political times. Yes, for sure. There, there is hope and we just got to hold on to that. Um, Do you have any new projects, any new research you're working on that we should be on the lookout for? Yes. I'm so excited. So my first, um, I felt like there was a missing uh, piece of Crook County and that was, all the data and observations that I did on 
the Cook County Jail. And if your listeners know anything about the Cook County Jail, it is the largest single site jail in America. It's the size of 72 football fields. And it's astounding because it's in, in the middle of an American city like Chicago. Um, I think going to that courthouse, seeing that ominous jail all the time that literally sat uh, near Little Village, which is where my family is from, a little Mexican neighborhood that's called, you know, so people think of it as like the Me- Mexico of the Midwest is the nickname. Um, to me, the stories that were coming in and out of that jail were powerful. Um, I was hearing from defendants and from professionals alike that sheriffs were purposely uh, uh, releasing defendants into into gang territory in the depths of night so that they would get jumped. Little regard for safety, uh, human life, um, releasing people without jackets or bus passes, uh, hoping they'd fend for themselves. And that, that, it felt like unfinished business. And so I basically went back to the Cook County uh, Courthouse and the adjacent jail. And I did a series of um, nights following people home in and around the Cook County Jail. And in some ways trying to talk about how the suffering that happens in that jail bleeds out into the streets and into the communities itself. And so I have a new piece out called The Waiting Room. It's a part of Amazon Original Stories. And if you have Amazon Prime, it is downloadable for free. It's basically a Kindle book or, you know, a a story that you can listen to uh, like a podcast, almost like serial. And it's part of a cluster of a bunch of stories. Uh, Natalie Moore is doing one on uh, called the payback on John Burge and the torturing of 130 uh, Chicago citizens, black men that were ultimately given reparations. Uh, there's a profile on Kim Fox. So it's really a great, like a five part series in mine. The waiting room really speaks to this arduous process of being jailed in America and how it really punishes not just the defendants, the people held in that jail cell, uh, but everybody, the families, the communities, anybody who knows and loves them. And I try to humanize that story. So um, hopefully people will read that. It, it tells, you know, a lot of the tales of abuse that are in Cork County. It just shows how they're endemic in the jail system. It's probably not surprising. And in one case, you know, I, I was doing an interview for Cork County on the like the local PBS uh, station. And they said, you know, uh, there was a share, uh, excuse me, a Supreme Court justice from Illinois that did court watching in Bond Court. She saw a woman brought out into open court wearing nothing but a garbage bag. She was mentally ill, homeless, and the sheriffs hadn't even bothered to clothe her. And I think it was that moment when I heard that story and felt like I had something to tell on this issue. And I felt like there's a lot of reform rhetoric going on in Chicago about that jail and about Tom Dart. And and some of that is true. But I think the lived experience is much more nuanced and much more heart wrenching than what he's trying to make out in the media. Mm, I have to check that out for sure. I definitely want to check it out. And it's Thank great you. that this work is accessible um, to the public. So we'll, we'll definitely link that um, following the interview. Thank you. Um, can, uh, speaking of links, is there, a, uh, is there a place where people can find you, um, you know, besides uh, the work you just mentioned? Um, are you on Twitter? Um, yes, I am on, I am on Twitter and all week. All this upcoming week, I'll be tweeting about the Laquan McDonald trial and following along with everyone else. Uh, My Twitter handle is nvancleave, 
um, and V-A-N-C-L-E-V-E. And they can follow me on NicoleVanCleve.com as well. Nice. Well, well we'd, like to th- we'd like to thank you, Dr. Van Cleve, for taking out the co- time to come talk to us about your work and your book. We'll definitely, um, you know, for those of our listeners, check it out, buy it. It's a really good book and follow the work of Dr. Van Cleve. So thank you so much. Thank you. All right. All right, Dad, so what you think about Dr. Van Cleve in Crook County? Uh, I just have to say that I appreciate her, like, putting this knowledge out there uh, so that people can just be a little bit more informed about how the systems work and, you know, potentially where they fit in. Like she mentioned, the, like, jury um, and, like, making sure that jurors are, like, aware of what's happening. So I just really appreciate that. You know, she spent the time like doing this research and and just putting it out there for people. Yeah, no, like, you know, this is one of the important things about having and doing this type of research and qualitative research, um, because you catch a lot of things that you won't catch. Right. With just one, you're not going to catch stuff with just numbers. I mean, of course, we understand that there's racial inequality present, but then it can be easily denied. Right. Because if you look at the way we look. courtrooms operate in the formal procedures and the formal documents, of course, you're not going to, you're never going to have these terms that they use informally to describe people of color or people from certain backgrounds or communities, right? That go on in the language that's used and the mocking and the games that they play, like the two-ton game. That's never going to show up in paperwork. Mm-hmm. So it can be easily denied. And it's with, with this kind of research to say, hey, yes, okay, quantitatively, we see the numbers. And now qualitatively, right, or through this ethnographic research, we see that it is still very much prevalent in the culture of these courtrooms and how people operate and have conversations with one another. So I think, you know, there is still value and there will always be value in this type of research. And so I'm glad she did what she's been doing. Mm-hmm. You Numbers cannot tell you the entire story. It just cannot. Mm-hmm. Um, I also thought it was interesting because I was like, hmm, I wonder could I have captured that given my, you know, phenotype like I'm a dark-skinned black woman there are certain things like she mentioned kind of being having access to some of this information because of how she looked and so it made me think about my own dissertation project and and the issues I'm facing but that's another day (laughs) Uh, but you know I will say that I'm happy she kind of called out the role of the public defender in perpetuating inequality in the system without going into too much detail you know I actually know someone who who, you know, recently had an experience with a public defender. It was a a non-violent, you know, offense that, you know, should have just kind of like went away. And the public defender really tried to pressure this person to just plead to something that could have had really negative consequences, you know, for their career and, and things of that nature. And, you know, thank goodness this person could afford a private attorney and was able to, you know, do this process for the cases being dismissed. But how many people can not afford a private attorney and mm-hmm. are stuck with a public defender, you know, who's not like Ashley, you know, who we interviewed and who really cares, but mm-hmm. is a public defender that's really just trying to get you through because, you know, they don't want to, they don't really care about this case. Yeah. Even in her book in, um, in Crook County, she had asked questions to public defenders and private attorneys, right? Just even the question of, do you believe that defendants are treated fairly when the court in the court, regardless of their race or class. And, um, you know, most of the public defenders said no, right? That they're not treated fairly and they're representing this population, but yet still 
are contributing to this, right? Even with this understanding. So it's this kind of weird relationship that's going on that, you know, we're aware of it, but are in a position where they really seem to not be able to affect, to, to reverse the changes and the outcomes of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, so that's interesting. Yeah, and uh, time and time again, like we said, we've had conversations about this in the past. You know, private attorneys are privileged in the courtroom. More than likely than not, you're going to get the outcome you want when you have a private attorney. And But again, majority of the people who are involved in the system just don't have the money or resources to, to do that. So it kind of sucks. You know, mm-hmm. And even in her book, she talk on things like pre-trial services and people sitting behind bars because they can't afford bail, you know, which has been another issue mm-hmm. that she highlights in the book. And it's problematic, too, because you're already poor. You're already probably working a minimum wage job. And now you may be innocent, but you can't get out of jail. And now you can't go to work. And now you lose your job. Right. And all these things that happen because of that, just because you can't afford like the, to get out. A lot of issues. A lot yeah. of sad things. I um, one last thing I appreciate is uh, her just pointing out how dependent on police officers that you know prosecutors and the courts are, and how you have to you know kind of play into you know what they want from you. You have to just be you like walk on eggshells because they can make or break your cases, and it just makes me think like how many times have justice not been served, especially when a police officer um, is involved, like in a case, how many times have justice not been served because, you know, the prosecutors are far too concerned with, you know, not making enemies with police officers. Mm -hmm. And we, and we know, (laughs) we see it, you know, what's been going on. And yeah, it's like this weird relationship. I feel like they are too close because on just thinking from how, like she said, the, the relationship between prosecutors and pu- police officers work is that, you know, you rely a lot of prosecute the prosecutor's evidence relies on police officer testimony and all that kind of stuff or providing evidence. So if you begin to, I guess, combat or go against police officers, then that also opens, you know, this kind of Pandora's box of, hey, you, you also said these police officers are corrupt or bad, you know, as a defense attorney, right? And so how can we, su- you know, support this evidence or take this as, you know, um, truth from what they're saying and what they're doing? So I think that's another reason why prosecutors also stand away from it is because like, oh, if we poke too many holes or show corruption, then that means the evidence we get from them are also going to get poked ho- holes poked in them and, and seem corrupted as well. So we need mm-hmm. to figure out a way to fix that and and just, you know, distance, have a prosecutor and police officer have them more distance in their relationship and how they navigate. Mm-hmm. Um, but other than that, you know, we'd like to thank Dr. Van Cleve for coming out, taking out the time to come chat with us, uh, pick up her book, check out her work for sure. Um, you know, we'll, we're definitely posting on everything. Uh, as always, continue to follow us on social media at BHC Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You know, check out our latest stuff out on our website, www.blackandhollyandangerous.com. Email us at bhcpodcast at gmail.com. Any questions you have, topics, ideas, maybe even being a potential guest, uh, definitely continue to do that. Even if you want to be a guest for one of our current event episodes, do that. Um, and and review, rate us, share us with your friends, share us with your enemies, share us with your family, and as always, continue to be the oppressor's worst fear. 
If you're interested in continuing this and other conversations, visit our website, blackandhollydangerous.com to subscribe to our email list, suggest topics, and participate in our discussion forums. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at BHD Podcast. And please don't forget to subscribe and rate our podcast on your favorite platform. And as always, continue to be the oppressor's worst fear.